Welcome to the EquipCast for the Archdiocese of Omaha. Designed to help leaders to transform their cultures, to embody the pastoral vision, to be one church, encountering Jesus, equipping disciples, and living mercy. Hey everybody, welcome to the EquipCast. My name is Jim Jansen and I am your host. I am joined today by author, speaker, coach, friend, man extraordinaire, Tim Glemkowski is with us today. Tim. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for having me. I am so excited to get to talk with you today with this episode. Tim, we always start the podcast by having people tell their story a little bit. Like, when did you when did you first encounter Jesus? When did you become a disciple? Yeah, no, it's good being here, first of all. I mean, yeah, it's a gift. I, I've, I've been listening a little bit to the EquipCast. I think Calvin Mueller, our, uh, oh, stop. my friend, that sent me a couple of episodes. And so I've been listening, I have to admit. That's great. And I was thinking, too, the first time we met, and I think it was at uh, at the McCormick Place in Chicago with um, yeah. like SLS 19 or yes. or, or something uh, at a conference. And Back when guys huge were... numbers of people all together was cool. Yeah. <laughs> and safe. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. It's amazing to think of. Mm-hmm. We kind of randomly discovered each other. We were both doing this work of working with parishes and accompanying pastors as they were trying to ask the questions of, you know, how do we do this? How do we actually make disciples? And, and I don't know, it's just wild to think on all that, all that has transpired in the world since, but um, yeah, but that's where I'm from, Chicago. So personal conversion story is I'm, I'm a Chicago Catholic through and through. My parents actually had their conversion when I was uh, probably like nine years old through a movement called Curcio. They went to a retreat. Yeah. I still remember that my, my mom went to confession like after that retreat. And uh, I remember sitting in the pew next to her. She was crying. You know, mm. just, this is like her first confession back in a while. And I remember thinking like, what happened to mom? You know, like, what's, yeah. and so I think I grew up, you know, good Catholic family. We were, we were kind of, we were solid. I mean, there was like, you know, daily rosary kind of family, like really good. You know. Yeah. That's, that's already above average. <laughs> yeah. We were, I should be clear. Like, I mean, my parents, daily communicants, like not very imperfect people in so many ways, but like very devout and, uh, and really tried to raise us, you know, in the faith. I would like to joke, I was kind of the black sheep for a while uh, of the family where I, maybe it was just too late for me when they had had their conversion. I was already too <laughs> too far gone or something, too pagan. But it wasn't until high school. I was about 18. I, I'd had like some other kind of significant moments of waking up to the possibility that there was. But it was, I was on a Steubenville conference as like a youth. I went uh, before my senior year in high school and really like had my, my first significant experience of an encounter with Jesus and adoration that opened my eyes to the possibility of like, oh, this might be, I think I was, I was unhappy. I was like empty. You know, Mm -hmm. I was trying to like kind of party a lot and play football and, you know, do kind of a, a classic like high school kid thing. And, and, but recognizing maybe, I mean, a gift, probably just honestly like a gift and a grace to recognize my own maybe poverty in the moment and be like, oh, I'm really, I'm really unhappy. And like Jesus might have answers to some of those questions or longings in my heart. So that was kind of the beginning. I mean, that was, that was the first conversion moment. You know, there've been, there've been many more (laughs) since it took probably a full year for me to really like hand over my life and actually try to like, like do it. When I look back on, I guess in the final analysis, someday I'll look back on that. That'll be the the still point of the turning universe, as far as my life is considered, will probably be that uncomfortable field house floor in, in Steubenville, Ohio in 2006. So That's awesome. Tim, I want to give you a chance to speak into something. The language around encounter. I love that the church is going there, but I think we sometimes equate encounter and conversion. Yeah. Yeah. And they don't always go together. No, no. I mean, like I hear you say your experience, and that was my experience. I can tell you my profound moment of encounter at Benedictine College in the St. Martin's Chapel uh, after some friends had died ended with me saying, 
oh crap, I kind of ran away. That, that encounter did bear fruit, but it did not bear an Augustine-esque immediate change of life. That was a delay and it wasn't a sure thing. Do you want to like speak into that? Because I think I think we're equating that oftentimes in common parlance. And your story reminded me, like, that's not always the way it works. I think the, the distinction is important because, yeah, the, it encounters like a clarifying moment, right? Where you recognize or apprehend something about God or some, some, some truth of the faith. But maybe you can even break them out in terms of like intellect and will. You know, the encounter is something that really is experienced by, and it informs the will. It tells the will about something. But really, at the end of the day, that, that choice of conversion is a choice of love, where it's like, yeah. am I going to, I mean, this is, the, when you look at the biblical narrative, like this over and over and over again, people who encounter Jesus and even have in the own and many left that day or the young man went away sad or like there's a real um, decision to follow Christ which is a leaving something behind like in a, a changing of my life a changing of my mindset and a following like a doing that is kind of a more an encounter I think often precedes that but there's a there's a an important distinction there I think I mean nobody converts themselves <laughs> encounter is a key part of it but conversion doesn't necessarily follow automatically you know, which, which, yeah, leaves, leaves place for discipleship and follow-up and all that. So last time we left you, Tim Glimkowski was a young man on the floor. It, it, you're 18 years old. You're not 18 anymore. You're an author, speaker, uh, involved with uh, Revive Parishes. Tim, tell us a little bit about your day job now. What do you do? Yes, I work for the Archbishop of Quilla and for the Archdiocese of Denver. So yeah, my work now is, I guess maybe I could even take a step back because it would inform some of why I'm doing what I do now. Yes, I'd, you know, coming out of college, I think it, for me, had a really big desire to be great, right? To like to live a life of holiness and John Paul's my hero. And so I think he, he was one of these people, I think when John Paul kind of gets in your life, he, he stirs up this desire to, to do something meaningful with your life and, yeah. and, uh, and impact the world positively some way. And certainly for me, you know, so I had this great desire. I want to be a saint. I want to help other people encounter the love of God that I've, I've kind of come to know and that's changed me. And so really kind of, so I worked for a year for a Catholic uh, organization and I actually went to seminary for a year. And I think that's a big part of my story is even recognizing I had a very holy spiritual director, uh, when I was in seminary who, um, helped me kind of see, he was like, well, why do you want to be a priest? And I was like, well, I, I want to be holy and I want to help other people encounter the love of God that I've come to know. I gave like the exact same answer. It's kind of been, you know, those have been the desires of my heart for a while now. Right. And like, he was like, good. Okay. Awesome. Every Catholic's called to do that. Like, why do you want to be a, yes. why do you want to be a priest? Gosh, I love that. <laughs> yeah. I love that. We just had like, we just did an episode with our vocations director and I was like, okay, father, this is the time where I rant. Like, I hate it when like, you know, the well-meaning vocations director felt like, do you love Jesus? Do you like to pray? Maybe you're called to be a sister. I'm like, wait a minute, or a Christian? Like, it's just, anyway. Yeah, there was awesome. definitely I, some uh, dysfunction in there. I think maybe growing up in some unhealthy discernment cultures probably didn't help me, you know, in, in, yeah, in yeah. so many ways. But um, yeah, definitely. I mean, so I was kind of like, well, no, that's why I'm here. So he's like, well, great. We'll go figure out if God's actually calling you to do this, you know? And so I took, yeah. I took the rest of that year kind of to figure it out and discern out uh, ultimately. It, it is a sad state, though, that the basic call of Christianity feels so radical. Yeah. Even w within a Christian culture or within Catholic parish church life. So I, I don't know if I had a ton of examples for like the kind of kind of like radically surrendered experience of the Christian life that I wanted to just, I want to give my whole life to God. And I don't think I knew necessarily growing up like a lot of, I think it was like, that's it. That's what I, I do more now. You know, the Jim Jansons mm -hmm. of the world have come into my life and I'm like, oh, okay. Like, you know, now I see what it can look like. Husband, father, you know, do, doing it. But, uh, but at the time, not as much. So 
Yeah. So I actually taught then high school theology for a few years and then got really convicted at the time about parish life. You know, so it struck me. Mm. Some of it was in relation to my students, recognizing how much like even sometimes by the time I was getting to high school, it's kind of like too late, you know, in terms of their the formation they'd receive in their families or in yes. their parishes. Yes. I was like, I'm trying to convince you of something that like you have you have zero reinforcement for outside of my classroom. And I think what I recognized or like what I, I could say now, maybe couldn't have said then was like, to me, it seemed that the um, new evangelization had largely been carried out in movements and apostolates to date. Like there had, there's been a springtime of renewal yes. in the American church, like, and, and around the world, different places like for, but it's been, you know, kind of not always like being driven by the institution, which makes sense. There's this, Benedict talks about the charismatic and hierarchical like dimensions of the church, right? And like right. Yeah. how the one yeah. kind of renewal comes from the one and then, but then at some point begins to inform the other. And so I've, was convicted like, hey, if we're really going to see this new springtime actually happen, like John Paul, I think, prophesied, then we need to, it needs to start, like the institutions needs to start being transformed. Like parishes need yeah. to start operating with the same kind of vitality and these principles of conversion and discipleship that I, that I saw happening in movements and apostolates focus and others, right? So um, I went and yeah. worked at two parishes, kind of director of evangelization type roles and was really, uh, Enjoying those. And then, yeah, this, this work with Walter Catholic Institute, kind of coaching parishes, giving talks, just kind of like sprang out of my second parish job. It's just a desire to do something more with um, in the area. And so looking back at it now, it's kind of crazy to even think of like, man, all I got did there because it was it, we just kind of something me and some friends started as a way to like bear some fruit in our local church in the Chicagoland area. And it eventually became, it had to become my, my, my wife was the one who looked at me and was like, I was, you know, just, she was like, we need to see you, you know, so either shut down the, the apostolate or, or you're gonna have to leave your day job and go do this full time and, and fundraise. Yeah. And all that I stuff. think that we were, it was shortly in that context that we had met where I think you were just starting to like go beyond Chicago and it was just a lot. Everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it would have been like think, SLS yeah. 18. So I think I, yep. I, so I, I went full time in January of early of 18. So that I, th- I think, yeah, yeah, I think I would have been like two days just doing it, you know? And yeah, and we'd started to hear from other places around the country who were saying, Hey, like what you're doing with parishes, we want to do here. So we'd start trying to plant these different, you know, kind of regional missionaries that could do some of that stuff. So yeah, it's crazy to look back on, but Archbishop Aquila has kind of a vision for like, how do we set up the Archdiocese of Denver for a time of apostolic mission? If we're existing in this change of ages from a Christendom to an apostolic context, like how does that actually happen? We don't know. No, none of us have ever been here before, right? This is like, I mean, right, you know, yeah. this is a totally new era. And so how do we pray and discern what God's plan might be for the transformation of the Archdiocese of Denver in this day and age? That's the work I kind of do now with the, his strategic leadership team, helping to facilitate some of that work and be a kind of, you know, assist him with some of those initiatives. So it's a huge joy, but this is my heart. It's like, I'm, I just, I want to see a Catholic church. You know, in some ways, I mean, maybe I could be so blunt. Like if I'm being honest with you, one of the reasons I'm so convicted about it is like, I would say two things, like one, all the opportunities I felt like I didn't have growing up, yeah. thinking of my experience of parish life as I was growing up. And it's like, I don't think I knew the Eucharist was actually Jesus till I was like 19. Tim, that's exactly my story. I just, I just had a chance with my teenagers. I've got, you know, some of the listeners know I've got six kids. I've got three teens and three toddlers, full house. And I had a chance with the teens to sit down and share a little bit of my story. It was, you know, a couple weekends ago, it was the, it wasn't the Feast of Corpus Christi, but it was the, uh, the John 6 reading cycle. And I was able to do a little Bible study on John 6, but I made it mostly about a testimony. And I was like, it's like, guys, I didn't know. I distinctly remember actively disbelieving 
that Jesus was really present in the Eucharist through my freshman year in college. I had the benefit of being a history major where I, I was like, this is, this is really nerdy. So great nerd alert, but like it was Irish history, the book of Kells, it's an illuminated manuscript. And when you get to John chapter six, there's this, and I was putting up all these like stupid, you know, before the Da Vinci code, these kind of anti-historical quasi-historical arguments. And, and the book of Kells is written by Irish monks, illustrated by Irish monks in like the year 500 or something. I mean, it's just insanely old. Way back. Yeah. Yeah. It's way, yeah. Way before my bogus theories were, you know, that you know, Aquinas made that up or, and, and they're like, just in passing, you know, like the guy, next slide comes up and it's like, oh, and here's the sixth chapter of John's gospel. And as you can see here, it's this host with his very Irish Jesus head and arms and legs coming out. It's like, oh, clearly you can see here by this illustration, you know, the Catholic belief that Jesus is really present in the Eucharist and moving on. I'm like, good. You know, it's just crap. Yeah. Like, this is really true, which eventually led to like, why have I never heard this? Right, right, right. I've been Catholic all my life and I've been a pretty good Catholic. Well, it depends on your standard. Anyway, yeah, I know that story. It's like, dang, why did this not, how did I miss this? Yeah. Why was this never shared with me? Yeah, so it's like, you know, what the church teaches, but also like how the church lives, you know, like in, in the, yeah, the prayer life I'd come to yeah. learn that was like filling my life with a joy and a peace I could have never thought possible or the Catholic community and friendship. I was like, like I just felt like, I, I mean, especially in college, I feel like there were so many blessings just being dumped on my life that it was like, I even thought back to, you know, high school and like all these buddies of mine from the football team that like, I don't know, you know, we had fallen away from the faith and it's kind of like, we, do we even give them a shot? You know what I mean? Like, do they even know what they're falling away from? Like, I felt like I've, I'd seen the, the, the inner hole, like the coherence and the, the, the life giving yeah. nature, I guess, of the gospel. And it, it just has always felt to me like, I, I, to be honest with you, I just, I just never want someone to have to, to grow up Catholic, to encounter a Catholic parish, to encounter a Catholic person and like walk away without at least knowing what they're walking away from. There's such a, a richness to the way we yeah. live and pray and think as Catholics. And I just want, I want everyone in the world to know Christ and him crucified. And like, that's why I do what I do, right? Like with the, I'm convicted about parish renewal because I'm convicted that that's the great missionary opportunity of the church right now. We have these 17,000 mm -hmm. outposts of the church's mission throughout the United States. If the cultures can be renewed so that they can do that effectively for people, for my football friends or whoever it is that yeah. encounters them, then like, that's a huge opportunity to miss before we just declare the parish like a, a uh, an outdated or irrelevant institution, you know? So uh, I'm convicted about that, I guess. Yeah, I love that. 17,000 missionary outposts. So we're already here, but just give like a short thumbnail sketch. Most of our listeners are swimming in like the life of Catholic parishes. And sometimes when you're swimming in water, you, you can be kind of blind to the reality. Can you just give us a short glimpse into parish culture and the culture at large that, that we now find ourselves? Yeah, I think it depends. Like um, I would say like most of the parishes I encounter now, like I, I had a little like quadrangle, like a box at one point that I would kind of use to like describe like different types of we talk in the book a little bit about different types of parishes, but even like, or like, I think sometimes there's like highly functional, highly dysfunctional, and then there's like missional or Christendom, right? So like part of the whole thing here is like sometimes in the yeah. parish renewal conversation, we can focus, tend to focus like in those of us who work professionally in the church, right? Like we know all the numbers, we know the, the giving statistics and the attendance statistics and it can almost seem like we need to fix that problem by renewing parishes. Mm. To me, what, what motivates me to see parishes renewed is like, the mission of Jesus Christ is perennial. Like the church exists in order to evangelize. Like 
that's not just like what the church does. Like this is why the church exists is that from all history, the father created humans because he wanted them to be loved, right. And to experience a love that only he could provide. And then when they fell from that relationship, the rest of the biblical narrative became about how can he get his world back, right? How can he bring them back into a love relationship with him? He chose to send his son to take sin and death into himself to rescue them from captivity. And then the son sent a church in order to extend the life-giving like love that he has through the sacramental economy, through the preaching, through the, to every time and in every place. And so like the reason there's a Jim Jan, like a, there's a reason there's an archdiocese of Omaha and an archdiocese of, of Denver. And like, is because of that mission. So to me, it's like even more fundamentally than just like where we are declining because we haven't been boldly about that. Why? I don't think even mm-hmm. if we weren't declining, I think the, the, the renewal moment would still be, paramount right now in terms of what the church is being called to do. I love that because sometimes there's this renewal can, I think, be sabotaged by this little bit of self-referential, you know, where where you're like, oh, we want more people. Oh yeah. Cause we want to save their souls. And we just need some bodies here, right? That the choir is way too small to give it. Yeah. You know, we need more volunteers. We and, need more. Those are like the yeah. immediate. And even if points. we weren't shrinking. Right. Yeah. Even if we weren't shrinking, Tim, you give us those four categories. Yeah. I have not heard you use that taxonomy before. Break that down for us. Yeah. So the idea would be kind of like, oftentimes what parishes want to do is they want to go from like dysfunctional, whether that's like spiritually or, or in terms of teaching or just in terms of like how they operate or their organizational health. They want to go from like dysfunctional to healthy. Like, so they want to be a quote unquote good parish, like, or a, a vibrant or a thriving parish, right? So they want to take yeah. that journey. But there's a different journey that I think a lot of parishes are called to right now, where it's like they have to also go from being a Christendom parish to a missional parish, where, and that's, that's about like cultural renewal. The issue is, is like when we talk about parish culture, it's hard to say because you're thinking about all these different parishes and their individual context. And it's like, I encounter a lot of parishes that are just stuck in maintenance mode. There doesn't seem to be a lot going on. The parishioners are frustrated. The pastor feels overwhelmed. The staff is lost. But I also encounter a lot of parishes too, where they seem to check all the boxes in terms of like what they should be doing. Like there's like, Hey, they got their tons of kids in RE and the school's doing pretty well. And like, there's a lot of activity and a lot going on. But I still think sometimes like when I'm thinking about the kind of culture that I think parishes are being called to step into now, and, and some have, but it's fewer, like I could probably point to hundreds of good, you know, thriving, healthy parishes across the country. But when I'm thinking about like missional parishes that really do a good job of making disciples of those in the pews and then seeking and saving the lost, like that number is, in my opinion, far fewer sometimes. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I, I love the way you're I love the way you're laying this out because you're making clear, like, my gosh, it is a beautiful thing when it perish. It's like the pews are full, RE's full, giving is stable, beautiful liturgies. And yet, if the neighborhood isn't being changed, that's it. Yeah. If the people there can't say, when was the last time you introduced someone to Jesus Christ? Usually there's crickets afterwards. Right. Because that. That's a different thing to be a, a faithful spa or to be a church militant, military, missional outpost. Totally different. It's not that the one's bad. It's intensely good. Right. That's the challenge. Right. But it's not. Nobody wants to get out of that jacuzzi. It's like, it's cold outside. Everybody. <laughs> totally. Totally. And, and I think too, the part of the problem though is like, 
the Catholic hot tub, even without that missionary identity, if this is the church's why, if we're doing the hot tub thing without doing also doing the mission, like eventually the hot tub water starts to get a little lukewarm too, though, because it's like me as a layman, my vocation is like we talked about to become very, very close to our good Lord, but, but also to bear fruit and like to bear fruit abundantly. And if I only think of it in terms of like my devotional life or like the growth in virtue, that's good. But if it doesn't breathe with both of those lungs of holiness and mission, eventually even the holiness thing, there's a ceiling on that, right? If I'm, if I'm not getting like pushed by God, I'm not living the fullness of my, of what it means to be a holy lay person either. I sometimes think of it this way, you know, Vatican II, there's a universal call to holiness and a universal call to mission. Exactly, yeah. And I think part of what Pope Francis is trying to do with joy of the gospel, uh, Evangelii Gaudium, he's trying to point out like, do you miss the joy? Do you wonder where the joy is? Mm. It comes from mission. It comes from evangelization. Mm. And the crazy thing is, is I think if you were to talk to some of the leaders who have created these beautiful, beautiful communities, and you ask them, what's your greatest joy? They're like, oh man, when I'm at the bedside of someone who is sick and dying, mm. why would you deprive yeah. <laughs> those in your pew of that gift? Right. If you're saying being on mission is the greatest joy in your life, we know they're called to that too. Like equip them, yeah. get them out there because yeah. God knows the world needs it. Yeah, and uh, John Paul and Francis both talk a lot about this idea of like the, the clericalization of the laity. And then, but also the laicization of the clergy, where we've kind of like done this thing where we've kind of just blended lay and clergy instead of being like, well, clergy exists to like help sanctify the faithful and the faithful exists to go like, you know, be salt and light in the world. And there's a lot of like mindset shifts there that are still like making their way through where we're like, we want to talk about lay leadership, but like really like asking the right why questions that are like, what is the mission of the disciple? What is the mission of the pairs? Like, why do these yeah. things exist? What are they supposed to do? That, that when you, once you know what something's for, you know how to use it, you know, even my own life, right? Like, and, and I can learn only that there's joy in losing my life for the sake of the other of the others when that's like it, it, almost like second nature in parish. Like it shouldn't even be like something we have to like teach. It should just be something like at some point, something that's so much a part of like the normal experience of what it means to be Catholic in our parishes that people just like, catch it if they spend any amount yeah. of time with us at all yeah well i mean it becomes a culture that's it that's the difference between culture it. and just like yeah a program just or, yeah a series of programs yeah. yeah tim talk a little bit you met you you talk in the book about true versus false renewal mm. and for those of us i think have have been in the parish renewal business in the kind of the coaching the consulting space where we're trying to help people we run into this obstacle and i want to see if i can describe it well because I think you provide the anecdote well, so I'm trying to set you up here, that, that there's a, a healthy skepticism of some parish staff, pastors, and leaders that I would say, well, I, I want to make sure it's, it's qualified. It's a healthy skepticism where they say, I don't know about this thing you're selling, this parish renewal thing, because I've seen so much false renewal, mm. worldly, unfaithful, to, to what it really means to be Catholic and to the teachings of, of Jesus in the church. The superficial flash in the pan program. And yeah, we had 50 people and then we had 20 people. And then it's just the three of us, you know, like they've, they've seen that pattern over and over again. 
Talk a little bit about true versus false renewal. Yeah, I think it's a good question for us to ask. Like, and it's good to have a little humility on. I think this was one of the reasons I love giving the book from Christendom to Apostolic Mission to people because it's like it paints the narrative structure of like what's kind of going on in culture more broadly than just like, oh, like parish renewal is the latest fad. You know, it's like youth ministry was big in the 90s and now we're doing this parish renewal thing and then we'll do the next thing. And it's like, no, this is kind of yeah, yeah. like a, a more fundamental question of kind of like how does the church proceed authentically with reform and with renewal? And like, what does that look like? And I know there's a great book by uh, Kangar, Yves Kangar, who's a, you know, one of the kind of fathers of the Second Vatican Council, where even before the Second Vatican Council, he does this. And he, what he actually does is he looks throughout history at the different reform movements and says, like, what did they do? Like, not like, what's the pattern here? Like, how did they pray through and think through these kind of like things? And I think, so for the book, I wanted to kind of put a similar thing out there where, yeah, because I talked to a lot of like, friends who have a real instinct or like a heart for the church and fear or wonder like, is what's essential in the church going to be lost if we try to get a little bit too flashy about, so it's like, no. So what are, what are the criteria in the book we talk about too? It's like, there's probably more, but these were the two that seemed like I saw them most often kind of, these were mistakes people were making as they were trying to go about. The first is that we don't let it be like a spirit led renewal. We don't let God kind of lead it. Like, so if, if renewal is going to be authentic, it has to be something God does, not something I do, where it's just about this kind of technocratic, you know, American way of doing yeah. things. Where oh yeah. We we're like, up, let's get a plan. <laughs> we come up with a strategic plan. We've got it. We've got the whole thing figured out. We're, we're all, you know, very successful, important, smart people. And so we know what the we church have needs. due dates and a task list. And- That's it. Yeah. So I think, no, we got to be on our knees and kind of say like, all right, Lord, what's your plan here? What are you doing? And then how do we get behind that? Not, not just bring our plan to God and say, bless this, bless this, bless this, but say, all right, Lord, what are you doing? And how do I, how do I kind of bless that um, in my own life? And then I think the other one would be, wow, I'm sorry. That was like, Lord, here's what I'm doing. Please bless it. And you're like, Jesus, what are you doing? And how can I bless you? Yeah. How do I magnify That's that? Great. How do I praise that? I how do I, yeah. yeah. How do I live that? You know, thinking in that sense, I guess the word. So the, the second one I think is real renewal never takes away from what is like distinctively Catholic, what's at the heart of the church. Now, what's kind of important there sometimes is like, we need to also be clear on like that, which is distinctly Catholic is not that, which is only Catholic. Do you know what I mean? Like sometimes a lot of people yeah. say this, say more about that. Cause well, that's huge. Yeah. Like, so I, one time I gave a talk somewhere and I preached the gospel. Like I just gave like a classic kind of like charismatic proclamation on the first night of a, of a parish mission where it's like, here's what God made us for. Here's how we fell into sin and death. Here's how Jesus came to rescue us from that. And then here's how we responded yes. in light of that. And we did some prayer and, um, you know, a chance to kind of like give a response. And someone came with me after and they were like, I was Protestant and that was very Protestant what you just did. And I was like, no, the church fathers would say that that was a very good, look at Peter yeah. at Pentecost. Like he comes out of the upper room and he preaches the charisma. You know, this is the announcement of like what Christ has done. But we want to be, we're, we're used to in this, in kind of our context, like having to distinguish ourselves over and against other denominations. We're still suffering from the the reformation 500 years later we're still kind of reactionary and yeah i love i mean i think about Aunt nerd alert again right like cardinal avery dulles he said the church's evangelization efforts suffer from an excessive ecclesial centrism yeah yeah which is you know how you talk if you're a cardinal and you say like we talk too much about ourselves like right i mean he's a theologian he's a cardinal it's like we have to talk more about jesus right i used to god bless peter herbeck who's a, who was a, a a mentor to me in this and, and kind of gave me this epiphany as a missionary. 
I felt like if I didn't bring up Mary, the saints, purgatory, confession, you know, like the whole indulgences, the whole, like if I didn't bring candles and incense with me into every conversation, I was somehow unfaithfully Catholic. Mm. And in fact, it's like this, this deeper realization that if I begin with Jesus, the head, the body will most certainly follow. Yeah, yeah. But actually, to keep the kind of birth analogy going, if I start with the body, you know, I'm father of six and I've seen them all born. You start with the body, like, oh, things don't necessarily go well. Yeah, that's you not, know, yeah. if that's, yeah. you know, if someone happens to fall in love with the church but not Jesus, what have they fallen in love with? I think there's a danger sometimes that they have fallen in love with a philosophy or with a mode of aesthetics or music that, although good, is not the person right. and is not really the savior. Right. So. Authentic renewal is always authentically Catholic, right? So it's in yeah. the full picture what that means. So not just accentuating the things that distinguish us from other denominations, but also not eschewing anything that is kind of like robustly and powerfully. So this is the other, like, I, I, I see this actually temptation less often. I mean, we have, we're very blessed, you know, in the Archdiocese of Denver that like there's been a real heart for the truth, beauty, and goodness of the faith for a long time. So I see a lot of like really rich examples of this locally, but like sometimes you can see too, where um, we, we do two things sometimes as Catholics, we can be very falsely humble where we're like, Oh, I don't, I'm not holy enough to do that. Like we're, we're Catholics in yeah. their minds are not holy enough ever to do anything. Like until we're mother Teresa, we're not going to volunteer for <laughs> yeah. the greeter ministry, you know, but, <laughs> but then at the same time, we also do this thing where we can be very like, insecure and not confident kind of in like who we are and, and, and what's mm-hmm. good about, you know, our faith. I think that's part of it too, where it's like, bring the truth, the full truth of the faith. Don't be afraid of it. Bring the beauty and the richness of like the, the Catholic tradition and art and liturgy and like do that, you know, do yeah. that well and do it simply and beautifully in a way people can still access and be mystified by like, don't be afraid of the mystery of the faith and then bring the goodness of the church's, you know, tradition. We are the, we are, we have been for a very long time, the largest charitable organization in the world, right? Like right. our saints have always, right? Like we, we see Christ in the poor. That's what di- it's different about Catholic service, right? It's like, we don't, we, we serve and love Jesus in the poor, right? Like that's where we find him. And like, do, Amen. do all of that as part of your renewal thing. We, we can't just pick and choose like, well, this part of it is the thing I really like. You can do parish renewal. You can do real reform in your parish, change the culture of your parish while being richly and robustly Catholic as well. I think people need to hear that. Okay. So Tim, you gave us keys, if you will, or kind of like, like tests, <laughs> litmus tests to, to true renewal. One is it's got to be spirit led. It's got to be a, a prayerful participation of what the Lord is already doing. Can you share with us a little bit? Like, what does that look like? You know, stories of how that manifests. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. In some ways, that's been, so I've worked at the Archdiocese of Denver now for about a year. And in some ways, that's been even my own story here, right? Like, I came in hmm. having worked in a couple of postulates, used to being, you know, kind of very entrepreneurial, you know, ventures and expecting to say, like, all right, what are, what are going to be like the 10 things that we just do? You know, Archbishop Aquila and, and Father John Ricardo were working with Acts 29 and uh, some of our, our coaches there who have really even challenged me to say, what is God doing? Like, have we taken the time to really just like let him show us the next thing and then do that and then wait for him? Like they, they've said, you know, sometimes I think uh, Archbishop Aquila has said, like, you know, God doesn't work in five year 
plans. You know, that's not to criticize anyone who has a five-year plan, but it's like, yeah, no, that's great. I love it. He doesn't always drop like the tablets from the sky, I guess is what I'm saying, you know, in, in the form yeah. of a perfect, a perfect binder with everything. And I feel like there's so many great things we could do, but instead seeing like what God starts to do actually when we like just kind of do the next right thing that he's showing us that we're starting to see a lot of the fruit from it now. And it's been like, kind of frankly, like humbling to say like, oh yeah, like you're, you actually do do this um, if you if you are given space to do it. So yeah, wow. So talk more about the indicator of true renewal where it's authentically Catholic. Sometimes parishes, what they can do with the liturgy is try to make it almost like a um, kind of a catch-all experience, right? Like the liturgy is just kind of inherently not like a seeker-sensitive experience, you know? So yeah, I think there's been something beautiful. Like even I guess what comes to mind is like some of the focus conferences where it's like they'll have praise and worship. They'll have great bands and like they'll do, they'll do worship with adoration, like even bringing, you know, like beauty and mystery and tradition to those, you know, kind of encounters and experiences. But like their their masses and their liturgies are there's a lot of chant. And, mm-hmm. and I think we think sometimes that like we need to be relevant. And we we kind of sometimes use this like, well, like the kids, right? Like the like the, the young people need, but like looking at my so I have two siblings who are Gen Z. The, the smartphone is the most interesting thing ever. We will never beat the smartphone in terms of in terms of being relevant and contemporary and interesting and but, or to be more entertaining. I mean, it is the universe of entertainment uh, of entertainment in the palm of your hand. Always, constantly, right? So, but, you know, something beautiful, real, authentic, like, so there, there I think sometimes we're actually fine. And I think that's why, that's where we see um, a lot of younger people sometimes gravitating towards, you know, different, like, kind of like silence, like just wanting something to be quiet or something. So even like, I've noticed with like certain, like some of the weird parts of Catholicism that like people get kind of self-conscious about sometimes where it's like, oh, we do this thing and it's weird and Catholic, so we shouldn't talk about it. And it's like, I think some, you know, people I've met sometimes are like, no, that's the, like the stuff I love, like the weird traditions around saints, or it's like, we want so much to be part of a culture, like something that kind of has some identity to it. That's what everyone's searching for. Young people are these days. And I think we have that in spades in Catholicism. So I I really see, yeah, I think the focus liturgies are a great example of like a place where that kind of like principle is lived out really, really well. This is a little tangential, but I'm drawn just, I feel moved to share a story where uh, there's a, again, parish renewal, parish working on uh, trying to be more hospitable. And one of the, um, one of the youth leaders in the parish was so frustrated by the music, didn't think it was relevant enough. And when she went to the focus conference, she actually saw the same music, like literally even the same songs were being used in the liturgy there. But the experience was vastly different mm. because almost everyone there had already had an encounter, yeah, had already was already part of some real Christian community in their small group Bible study. Yeah. And when mass ends for anyone who has not been like it, it, first off, it's an ugly space. It's an auditorium and you do the best you can with, you know, with good lighting and a beautiful background with classic architecture, but it's an ugly space. The music was exactly the same as her parish, which she wasn't a fan of, but because everyone there loved the Lord, Mm. you can feel the reverence Mm. and it is a place of prayer. And she left realizing she's like, oh my gosh, I am not going to be continuing to chase down the music trail. I want to go down the evangelization trail because that was the difference. Almost everybody there was a disciple. Right. And 
that was sadly not her experience at her parish. Yeah, I'll never forget as showing up as a freshman at Francis University, Steubenville, after the noon mass, the noon liturgy, like, yeah, the responses, everyone is just like praying, you know, and not like- It's startling, it, yeah. It, I remember it shook. And then after mass, everyone hits their knees in like a Thanksgiving prayer. And I remember yeah. just getting goosebumps being like, whoa, this is different. But you're right. Like that wasn't just because those were the conventions. Of, it was because these people had fallen in love with Jesus. And this was how they like lived out that the experience, that love. Like that's my dream is like someday mm-hmm. I, the, yeah. the parish, Amen. I'll hang up my parish renewal gloves when like, my, the local parish, wherever I'm at is like, that's like, like that kind of, uh, that kind of experience is, um, is present. That's how we'll know. Yeah. I love it. I mean, that really, when God's people, and what I mean by that is like, not just people God has created, but people who have received the gift that he offers, like when, when disciples gather for prayer, Oh my gosh, it's so powerful. But sometimes I think our experience of ordinary liturgies in, in a typical parish is it's actually a little bit lonely if you're if you're a disciple because there isn't a thunder of voices for yeah. the responses. Yeah. yeah, man, that will be that will be the day. Tim, I have a whole number of other questions I want to ask you, but I think we're gonna I think we're gonna wrap for today, and we're gonna come we're gonna come back, and uh, when we come back, we're gonna talk a little bit about the clear path of discipleship. I think you're one of one of the most articulate voices about this concept. And we're going to talk a little bit about mobilizing leaders for parish renewal. Let's do it. Sounds good. So everybody, uh, come back if you've if you've enjoyed this. Share this for a friend. We're gonna we're gonna come back and we're gonna talk about a clear path of discipleship and mobilizing leaders for the work of parish renewal. Mm-hmm.